Right, so our, our second uh, talk on uh, Luke's Gospel, um, we're in the, the four-month lead-up to the crucifixion. So Jesus' last four months of ministry before his death. And uh, you'll remember that he's now moved down south, so he's in Judea throughout this time, and every now and then zapping across to Perea, which was the area of the Transjordan tribes, just to the east of the Jordan. So um, the, the, the Perean and Judean ministry. And Luke homes in on that, that aspect or that, that period um, of Jesus' life, and uh, hence the whole of the second part of his gospel virtually is uh, committed to it. So we're in chapter 13, and um, some, some people mentioned to Jesus uh, an incident that happened when Pilate um, had, had mixed... Um, had some Galileans killed, so this was some Jews from up north, and he'd mixed their blood with their sacrifices. And of course that was a, a totally blasphemous thing to do. And I mean, you know, the Jews would have considered their death to be tied in with such blasphemy would be as bad a death as you could have. And it was basically, you know, put to Jesus, did that happen to them because they were somehow worse sinners than anybody else? And, uh, and Jesus asserts that that wasn't the case. They weren't any worse sinners than anyone else at all. And uh, counters with uh, an example of another incident that he knew of when uh, 18 people um, had died when the Tower of Siloam in Jerusalem um, had fallen on them. And, uh, you know, so Jesus counters with another incredibly unfortunate incident uh, when 18 had died. And what Jesus said is, look, all will likewise perish if they don't repent. And, you know, here the Jews are saying that when, when people meet horrible deaths like that, were these people more sinful than the rest of us? And Jesus is saying, no, that isn't the case. Everyone is as sinful as everybody else. And basically he's saying, look, if you don't repent, something worse might happen to you. So he throws it back at them. Don't worry about, you know, did other people die of their sins? What about your sins? Uh, you know, sort of like, uh, you'll perish likewise if you don't um, repent. He then tells a parable of a, a fig tree. And it was a fig tree that for three years had borne no fruit. And, um, and what happens is the guy in charge of the fig tree says, right, it's got one more season, it's got six more months. And uh, if it doesn't bear any fruit next year, if it doesn't bear fruit in another six months, I'm going to cut it down. It's going to be the end of it. And of course, uh, the picture here is Israel is likened to a fig tree in the Old Testament. And of course, the thing about the three and a half years is that Jesus' three and a half year time preaching is coming to an end now. And what it is, it's saying, look, if, if, if Israel hasn't repented and believed on him by the time of his death, then that's going to be the end of Israel, which of course it was, because Israel didn't believe and so it was rejected and replaced by the Gentile church. So that was the point of uh, that parable. Um, we then have uh, an incident in, a uh, in the synagogue on a Sabbath. And uh, a woman was there who'd been demonised for 18 years. And the effect of the demonisation was that she was bent over and she couldn't straighten up. So this was a demonic kind of disease type thing. You know, I mean, there's a difference between demons and disease. But the presence of this demon actually affected her so she was bent over. So she had a bent spine. That's what the demon had, had done to her. And so Jesus heals her. He casts the demon out and she's healed. 
Now, this led, because it was on the Sabbath, uh, and remember, under the tradition of the elders, you weren't allowed to heal on the Sabbath, um, this led to a confrontation between Jesus and the ruler of the synagogue. And, uh, um, and Jesus' response is, look, you untie your animals to water them on the Sabbath, so why shouldn't this woman be unbound from Satan on the Sabbath? He says, you'll untie an animal to give it water, that's good for the animal, where well, he says, I've untied this woman from Satan. That's done her much more good. You know, and he's throwing their stupid traditions right back at them. He then tells the, the parable of the kingdom of God being like a mustard seed. This mustard seed, the mustard seed is very, very tiny, grows into a tree and the birds of the air perch in its branches. Now, um, in the Old Testament, trees often represent kingdoms. Uh, you know, I uh, draw your attention particularly to Ezekiel and, and Daniel there. And so this picture of a mustard seed that grows into a tree and the birds of the air, you know, kind of perch in its branches. And uh, sometimes the, you know, the birds of the air were, were, you know, to the Jewish mind taken as being, you know, a picture of the Gentiles because, you know, sort of like, you know, the birds of the air were by and large unclean to the Jews. And of course, what the parable is saying here, that from a very tiny beginning, mustard seed, the kingdom of God is actually going to become something global it's going to become a world power, which of course in time, when Jesus reigns for a thousand years, it will. <coughs> and then Jesus continues the parable, but with a, a variance, and he tells about yeast in dough. And again, the point is you have a tiny little bit of yeast in a big batch of dough, and that tiny bit of yeast affects the whole batch. And again, the same principle. Here, the kingdom of God was starting off very, very small. Here was Jesus, and hardly anyone believing in him. That's a small beginning, but the kingdom of God was eventually, what was happening here in Jesus was going to encompass the entire world. Now, Luke tells us that Jesus is now making his way to Jerusalem through various towns and villages. <coughs> so he's sort of traveling all around the area in the south, preaching and that. And um, Jesus is, is asked if only a few people are going to be saved. And uh, Jesus' response to that is that there's um, a narrow door uh, to salvation and many will try to get in through it, but too late. Um, and he says to them that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets will be in the kingdom of God. But the Jews at that time, he says, you know, this, the, the, you, you Jews at this period in history, you won't get in. And he tells them that the Gentiles... <coughs> will make it in instead of them. So in response, you know, Jesus, there are only a few to be saved. And Jesus says, yes, and this generation of Jews aren't among them. And the Gentiles are going to get into the kingdom before you. Um, and in that context, Jesus does the last shall be first and the first shall be last, you know, because the Jews were first, but now they're going to give way to the Gentiles. So the last now become first. Uh, then some Pharisees informed Jesus that Herod, this was Herod up in, you know, remember it's Pilate ruling on behalf of the Romans in the south, and it was uh, Herod ruling up in the north. And the Pharisees say that Herod wanted to kill Jesus. And Jesus responds by calling Herod a fox, and points out that no one has the power to stop him reaching his goal and dying in Jerusalem at just the right time. Because remember, Jesus was absolutely in control of his life and death, and any attempt to kill him would, would, would fail until the right time came. And we then have the very famous 
uh, time when Jesus laments over Jerusalem. He says, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you, you kill the prophets, you, you stone the ones that God sends to you. And he says, would that I could gather you like a, a hen gathers her chicks under her, her wing. And he says, but you would not. And, and then Jesus says, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And this is how we know that at the end of the tribulation, the second coming happens when Israel cries out for Jesus to come. And that is when Jesus will return to the earth for a second time. He says to Jerusalem, you will not see me again until you say, that's the Jews, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the second coming will be at the end of the great tribulation when Israel has come to believe and prays and cries out for Messiah to come, realising that their Messiah was Jesus after all. That is when you have the second coming. Now in chapter 14, Jesus um, is at the home of a, a prominent Pharisee. And this is quite a big feast that he's at. This would be a fairly rich guy. And um, in the context of the meal, he heals a man um, who was suffering from dropsy. Now dropsy was, the effect of it is sort of like your body filled up with... Um, you know, with fluid, so so people blew up, and it, you know, it was a pretty nasty disease. There was no <coughs> cure for it in the ancient world, and he heals this guy, and uh, and then again he reminds them because it's a Sabbath, and he's done wrong in the eyes of the Pharisees. He's broken the tradition of the elders. He heals this bloke, and he reminds them all that they would help their son out of a well if they fell into it. They'd even help their ox out of the well if it fell in. You were allowed to under the tradition of your elders. You could do that, you just couldn't heal the sick. And, and he said, you can do that, can't you, on the Sabbath? Well, point taken, and Luke says they had nothing to say. Uh, well, there's no answer to it, is there? And he then goes on to teach, and he, uh, he, he sees all the guests at this Pharisee's house, you know, all these other Pharisees, you know, important religious Jews, all going for the place of honour. So all the guys coming to this meal, they've all, they're very important, and they're all heading for the head of the table. And Jesus says, when you, he teaches, he says, now look, when you go to a meal, he said, take the lower place. Because if you take the lower place, you might be moved up to the place of honour. But he says, if you sit in the higher place, and the master of the feast says, oh, excuse me, would you sit down there at the lower place? You've been humiliated. <coughs> so Jesus said, went on to say, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles himself will be exalted. If you take the lesser place, then Jesus will exalt. But if we take the high and mighty place, then he will humble us. He'll get us down to the you know, other end of the table. And he tells them that also they should, when they have banquets, they should invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind. Now these were all the young, you know, I mean sort of, you know, the Pharisees didn't bother about them and that. And Jesus says they're the ones you should invite because they, they can't return the favour. You see, they, they can't invite you back to a big banquet that they're throwing. Because of course the Pharisees, they were, you know, you come to my big party, and you knew that that kept you in, and you'd get invited to their big party. And, you know, and Jesus said, no, no, no. He said, you know, invite those who can't invite you back. And then he tells a parable of a man who prepared a great banquet, massive banquet, and he'd invited loads and loads of people, but they didn't come. They were too busy. You know, they worked on their affairs, seen to their family. And, uh, and so what he did is he sent his servants to the streets and he said, bring in all the outcasts. They can come to my banquet. 
and the Pharisees knew exactly what Jesus was saying. God was throwing the banquet, saying, come, eat with my son. Israel was rejecting Jesus. They weren't coming to God's banquet. So God said, right, I'm going to get the Gentiles, the dreaded Gentiles that Israel thought were unclean. So again, another parable pinpointing that Israel, because of its rejection of Jesus as its Messiah, would be replaced by the Gentile church. Then Luke tells us that large crowds are following him wherever he goes now. And, um, and, and so he, he teaches on the cost of following him. This is what Jesus did. When he got crowds, he didn't encourage them to hang around. He came out with the really tough teaching when he had the crowds around. You know, he would actually make it hard to be a disciple, not easy, he made it hard. And he told them that if they were to follow him, they would even have to hate mother and father. They'd have to hate wife and children. They'd have to hate their brothers and sisters, even your own life. Now that's a Jewish idiom that they use. It doesn't mean hating in the sense why I can't stand the sight of you, but it means that you love one so much that even the others you love, it's hatred by comparison. You see, that's the idea of it. So what he's saying is, if you're going to follow me, you've got to put me above your family, above your mum and dad, above your wife and children, above your brothers and sisters, above, in fact, whatever is most precious to you, even your own life. And then he says, look, if, you, if you're going to follow me, pick up your cross, carry it. What do you do with the cross? You carry it to a hill, you get nailed on it and you die. You die to your own life. And then he, he gives two parables and he says, look, a man was building a tower. And he said, if you're going to build a tower, make sure that you can afford to finish it or you're going to be left with half a tower. Well, what a twit. And there's this big half a tower proclaiming to everybody that you couldn't start, you couldn't finish what you started. And then he said there was a king who heard that another king was invading him. And he said this king went out and talked peace first because he had to work out whether or not his army was big enough to beat the invading army. If it was, well then he could beat him. If not, he'd be best to surrender. So what Jesus is saying, look, don't, don't start following me on a whim. Count the cost. Make sure you've got what it takes. Make sure that you don't start something that you're not going to finish. To be my disciple, it means everything. And then he says, look, if salt loses its saltiness, it's good for nothing and it's thrown out. Now, then Israel knew full well that it was the salt of the earth. It knew that. And what Jesus is saying, look, Israel, you've lost your saltiness. And the point is that salt that's lost its saltiness is still salt, but it is not doing its job. It can't purify anything. It gets thrown out. Israel is still Israel, still God's chosen people, but it's not doing its job. It's not a light to lighten the Gentiles because it's out of fellowship with God. Therefore, it's going to get thrown out. And when it got thrown out, replaced by the Gentile church. This, 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 you can see why more and more they were wanting to kill Jesus. Chapter 15, uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law uh, complain about how all the tax collectors and the sinners gather around Jesus. We saw this last time, didn't we? That, you know, Jesus had fellowship with tax collectors and sinners, i.e. the prostitutes. And they were the two groups of Jews that he treated like Gentiles. They were unclean. And, uh, and of course, this complaining, remember, Jesus has done all the messianic signs throughout the previous three years or so. And so these are the interrogations now. You know, the Pharisees, uh, they've, you know, they've done the observing and they've got to the stage where they have to admit miracles are real. So now they're in the interrogation stage. 
where they challenge to find out if there's false teaching. And of course, the thing is that although Jesus, nearly every word he said, they disagreed with, they also knew full well it was entirely biblical according to the Old Testament. They couldn't speak against it biblically. It was going against, not the Bible, it was going against their own traditions, and that is what maddened them so much. And um, so in response to this, the Pharisees moaning that Jesus was hanging around with tax collectors and sinners and that, he tells the parable of the lost sheep, that the shepherd, he leaves the 99 sheep who are okay to get the one sheep that was lost. He says, this is what God's like. God goes after the, you know, the tax collectors and the sinners. He tells the parable of the lost coin. A woman, she loses a coin. It's valuable to her. She hunts high and low everywhere, tears the house apart. She finds the lost coin and she rejoices. Why? Because that coin's valuable to her, it's money. Well, we, the sinners, the outcasts, are valuable to God. That's what God's like. And then you get the parable of the prodigal son. And the point about the prodigal son, you remember the son left his father, ended up, frittered all his money away, ended up feeding the pigs, didn't he? And he said, I'll go back to my father. And he goes back to his father, ready to work as a servant. But the father welcomes him back and says, right, fatted calf, rejoicing. So there was no payback. There was just forgiveness and grace from his father. But the push behind the parable was that the prodigal son's brother had stayed at home with the father all the time hadn't squandered his inheritance but the point is the son who had remained his attitude to the prodigal son coming back was 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 complete self-righteous snottiness he couldn't bear the fact that this prodigal son had been welcomed home and he's moaning at his father because his father was welcoming back the prodigal son well <coughs> the prodigal son of the tax collectors and the outcasts and the sinners and the Gentiles, the snotty brother, is Israel. And, uh, you know, wow, Jesus right, right between the eyes all the time. Right, chapter 16, he tells the parable of a shrewd manager. Now this guy, he was a manager, business manager, servant for a rich, rich bloke, right? And um, he'd, he'd been wasting his master's possessions. He'd been like, you know, wasting money on the side and fiddling the books and you name it. And he realised that the master was going to find out, right? So what he did, okay, is he fiddled the books even more and he went round to lots of people who owed his master loads of money. And what he did is he fixed the books and he reduced the debt to the master, therefore putting them in debt for himself so that when his master kicked him out, he'd have all these friends, all these people who were in debt to him, all right? Now then, Jesus commends that shrewd manager. Now, commends him not for his dishonesty, that wasn't the point. Jesus commends him with his shrewdness with money. Not his dishonestness, but what Jesus is saying, that dishonest steward was really on the ball when it came to money. And that's the point of the parable. And Jesus is saying, and in this context he says, you cannot serve God and mammon. And he's teaching, if you're going to be disciples, then you must have trustworthy stewardship with money. You must be on the ball with your money. All right. And in him saying you can't serve God and mammon, the truth is, if you're not on the ball with your money, then Satan is, and it will not be used for what God wants it to be. It, money will run away with you, rather than you controlling it. And what Jesus said here is he says, look, you won't be entrusted with the true riches, spiritual riches, 
if you're not trustworthy in handling worldly wealth. And that's what Jesus is saying. And this is where we have a direct relationship between the quality of our Christian life spiritually, our discipleship, and our use of money. If our use of money, if our control of money, and if our relinquishing of money to the Lord in sacrificial giving as the Lord leads, if we're not doing that, then we cannot say that our discipleship is, is true. And um, I read in the book during the week, John Wimber said, and this is good, he said, commitment in the kingdom of God is spelt M-O-N-E-Y. And it is. And here, Jesus is saying, if you're not right with God with your money, which means being on the ball with it, in control of it, but then being on the ball of it, you're then surrendering it completely to the Lord because it's his money, not yours. All right? He says, if that isn't in place, then your discipleship, uh, you will not be entrusted with the true spiritual riches. And then Luke says that the, the Pharisees realised that this was aimed at them as much as anyone because they love money. And they did. Pharisees love money. And, and, and this teaching, again, right, right between the eyes. And it says, so they sneered. They sneered. And uh, Luke tells us that when uh, Jesus re you know, saw that they were sneering, he rebuked them publicly for justifying themselves in the eyes of men. Because here was as important a teaching as Jesus is ever giving, and they're kind of like they're sneering at it, they're mocking it. You know, that, oh, this isn't important. Why? Well, because they knew it was important. They were trying to cover their own sin. So Jesus, because they were trying to cover their own sin in public, Jesus rebuked them for it in public. Then we have uh, some teaching uh, from Jesus that the law and the prophets, i.e. the Old Testament, wouldn't pass away. Uh, we saw in, uh, in Matthew the parable that a good teacher of the law brings out of his light chest things that are old and new. Because the point is that the new covenant is there in the old covenant. And all the wisdom and all the truth of the Old Testament, although we're not under the law of the Old Testament, the point is that all that truth embodied there, and remember the new covenant is in the old covenant because the new covenant was established with Abraham, who was in the Old Testament. Therefore, Jesus is saying, you know, this is, look, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, as Matthew said, um, you know, but, but they won't pass away, you know, so I haven't come to destroy the Old Testament, not at all, that's, that's needed. Then you have Jesus' teaching on divorce, you know, sort of saying that, you know, divorce, you know, sort of like is a no-no. Now, obviously, in Matthew, we have the adultery clause okay so you know that adultery gives reason for divorce but there was jesus you know kind of like clearing up that because again the jews would rather divorce at the drop of a hat you know especially if they you know if, they, you know, if their wife wasn't pleasing them they'd divorce her this this was a protection for women by the way this wasn't playing into the hands of men this was a protection for women so there is jesus holding up the marriages till, till death do us part then jesus tells the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, who was a beggar, and uh, the rich man had everything, and Lazarus used to sit outside his house and, you know, sort of like, you know, pick the, you know, the dregs of food virtually from his rubbish bags, and, um, and the dogs would come and lick his sores. I mean, this, this is a guy who has not been dealt a very good hand in life, but he was a believer. Now then, the rich man dies, and he's in Hades, and he's in torment. And he's crying out to, you know, sort of like, oh, you know, sort of like, give me some water on my tongue. So he's in torment. But uh, the, the, um, the beggar, Lazarus, he's gone down into paradise. He's with Abraham. 
and there's a divide between Hades and Paradise. Remember Paradise, when Jesus ascended, Jesus took it back to heaven. But at this point, Paradise is at the centre of the earth, the same as Hades is. And so the rich man, who had everything on earth, now has got nothing and he's in torment. Lazarus, who had nothing on earth, has got everything because he was a believer and saved. And now Lazarus is, uh, sorry, the rich man is realising what a fool he'd been. And he says to Abraham, look, you know, send, send someone back to the dead. So my brothers, my family, if, if they, you know, if you, if you go and tell them, if someone is sent back from the dead to tell them, then at least they'll believe and, you know, sort of like they won't end up in Hades with me. And what he's told, um, you know, sort of basically is, uh, you know, look, they don't believe Moses and the prophets. Or they don't believe the Old Testament. So if they don't believe the Old Testament, don't kid yourself that they'll become believers just because somebody is raised from the dead. And the point was made because Jesus was raised from the dead and Israel still didn't believe. So that proves the point. At the end of the day, we mustn't kid ourselves that people, I mean, it's good to see miracles, let's see more of them, please Lord. But we kid ourselves if we think people get saved through miracles. People get saved through repenting of their sins and surrendering to Jesus. And miracles are not going to cause anyone to become a Christian who is not willing to surrender their lives to Jesus. Right, okay, chapter 17. Um, um, we have the teaching, firstly, of Jesus warning against not being the cause of other people's sinning. So there you've got the thing about not being a stumbling block to other people. So don't be the cause of... If you're the cause of other people's sinning, then God holds you responsible for their sin as well as your sin of causing them to sin. So that's tremendously important there, uh, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, sort of tie that, you know, I mean, sometimes if people like, for instance, get angry with us because we're following Jesus, that's their problem. But if somebody gets angry because we're sinning against them, we're accountable for their anger as well as our sin against them. Wow. Uh, then Jesus teaches that you must forgive your brother's sin against you seven times a day. And of course Matthew tells us that Jesus actually went on to say 70 times seven, i.e. an infinite number of times. So you must never run out of forgiveness for people sinning against you. Um, the disciples then say, Lord, increase our faith. Lord, give us, give us more faith. And uh, Jesus responds by saying to them that, uh, you know, look, all, all you need is faith the size of a grain of mustard seed and you can tell a mulberry tree you know to sort of like dump itself in the in the sea and of course the point is that the disciples are saying give us more faith and Jesus is, is saying no it's not the amount you've got it's the sort of faith you've got and of course he's talking about the faith that is genuinely inspired in our hearts by the Holy Spirit then he uh, does the teaching about uh, that a servant that when a servant has worked all day in the field he comes into the master's house, all right. Is his day over? No, 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 no. Then he has to serve his master's dinner because his master's day is over. His master's going to relax for the evening. But because he's the servant, he's worked all day, now he's got to serve his master through the evening and help him relax. And at the end of the day, that servant is to say, when he goes to bed at night, we are unworthy servants, I've only done my duty. Now, what this tells us is not to forget that we are servants. We actually have no right to leisure time of our own at all, but God in his mercy grants it to us. But it's a reminder we deserve nothing, and yet God grants us so much. 
but let's not take it for granted. And of course the point is it means that, although that you know you might have come home from work, you've done your day's work, well in one way you deserve to relax, but in another way there might be occasions when the Lord has work for you. See, you can't relax, because there are other things that come first. doesn't mean you'll never be able to relax, but in the same way that we can actually end up that our money is our money, we can end up saying, but my time is my time. Your time, my time is no more mine than my money is. It's all God's. God can take every penny I've got away tomorrow, just like that. And he can take my time away, just like that. Because if he turns me off tomorrow, I'll drop dead. And I'll go to be with him in heaven, and I'm out of time down here anyway. It keeps us in our place. We mustn't take things for granted. Right, now remember at this point, all right, we're coming to the end of the ministry of Jesus now, the Pharisees, they're going up the wall, aren't they? I mean, they're just, you know, Jesus has worked the Messianic miracles, they've gone through all the procedures and that, and they're, they're being forced to listen to all this teaching because they've got to keep doing the interrogations according to the tradition of the elders. Jesus now healed ten lepers, and he tells each one of them to go to the priests. Now, as soon as each of those ten lepers go to the priest, the Pharisees now have to do ten more investigations, ten more periods of, you know, interrogating Jesus. They're desperately trying to get away from Jesus. Jesus heals ten lepers and makes sure that the Pharisees have got to stick with him like a shadow. You could, Jesus is giving them every chance to hear the truth and repent. But of these ten lepers, only one of them comes back after they've been to the priest, only one of them comes back to say thank you. And it was the Samaritan. So ten lepers healed, only one came back and actually got saved and became a disciple, and it was a Samaritan. You know, remember they were the half-caste Jews, half-Jew, half-Assyrian in their background, and the Jews proper looked down on them, they were half-caste Jews. Remember the parable of the Good Samaritan. Then the uh, Pharisees ask about you know, how will we know when the kingdom is coming? Because they were expecting that, you know, the, the kingdom of God would literally be established on the earth, the Messiah would reign from Jerusalem. Now, one day that's going to happen. But Jesus replied, no, 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 the, the, the kingdom is not going to come with signs to observe. Not now. He says, the kingdom of God is within you. Because the point is, the literal coming of the kingdom of God was postponed now. Israel hasn't believed. That's postponed. That's going to happen after the rapture. But now, the kingdom of God is within you because the kingdom of God now is the church. It's, it's Jesus reigning in our hearts. At the second coming, the literal kingdom will happen and Jesus will reign literally and physically from Jerusalem. So here we see that the coming of the kingdom, which will come with signs, has been postponed. Rather than happening then, it's going to happen in the future. And between those two times, the rejection of Israel and the kingdom coming again, you have the church age, and that is with Jesus ruling in our hearts. And that doesn't come with outward signs, because the prophetic clock has stopped ticking. So there are no more signs now until the kingdom begins to come, and that all happens from the rapture onwards. Then Jesus goes on to teach about the second coming and the great tribulation, and, and, and here we've got Luke's equivalent to Matthew 24. And he says, look, you know, when, when I do come, it will be like the flood of Noah, and it will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, when I do come, there'll be two people in bed and one will be taken. He said, there'll be two women grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Now, what he's talking about here, this isn't the rapture. 
What this is, when Jesus comes again at the end of the Great Tribulation, believers, those who have become Christians during the Great Tribulation, all right, at the second coming, remember that the angels, you know, you know, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the angel will separate, you know, separate the tares from the wheat. The believers will be, you know, sort of taken to one side and the unbelievers dealt with and killed. And so the point is that here it will be like Sodom and Gomorrah and like the flood of Noah because it was the believers who were left on the earth. So the angels gather the unbelievers here. The believers are left as of Sodom and Gomorrah and at the flood of Noah, it was the unbelievers who were taken. So here, the angels, they take the unbelievers and they're killed, leaving only the believers on the earth at the second coming when Jesus comes. And, uh, you know, like you've got the, you know, the sheep and the goats as well, haven't you? The separation between those who believe and those who don't. So at the second coming, there's a judgment on the Gentiles and the believers are separated out and the unbelievers are killed. And there's a judgment on the Jews and the believers are separated out and the unbelievers are killed. So here, the ones that are taken are the unbelievers. They're the tares being gathered out from the wheat and destroyed. Right, now in chapter 18, Jesus tells the parable of the unjust judge. And uh, this was the judge who feared neither God nor man. He had no conscience, this judge at all. And um, you remember there was this widow who wanted justice from him. And she, just, she, she, she found out where he lived. And she just kept knocking on his door all night. And when he realised that she wasn't going to go away, he said, I neither fear God nor man. He says, I couldn't give our monkeys about her, but I do give her monkeys about my sleep. And he gave her justice to get rid of her. And Jesus told um, that parable to teach the disciples that they should always pray and not faint. And you'll remember as well, there was the parable uh, similar to the, the, you know, the friend who wanted to get bread because his friends had turned up in the middle of the night. And the idea is persistence in prayer. And it's not... It's not that God is a, a friend who won't give you bread or that God is an unjust judge, quite the opposite. But we need persistence in prayer because sometimes it can seem like that. It can seem like that, that God isn't answering. So with prayer, we've got to keep going like that widow banging on the door. Then Jesus tells the parable um, of, uh, say, that there was a Pharisee. Well, this probably wasn't a parable, actually. It's probably actually, you know, two people that he knew. There was a Pharisee who prayed with himself. And there was uh, a tax collector, all right, who beat on his breast and he wouldn't even look up to heaven. And this tax collector who beat on his breast, he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The tax of the Pharisee says, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. And Jesus said it was the tax collector who went away justified. Because when he said he cried out for mercy, the Greek word for mercy there is propitiation. It's the idea, he's literally crying out that God will cover his sins and give him righteousness where he has none of his own. The Pharisee assumes he has got righteousness. And Jesus said that the tax collector went home justified. Justified, justified, never sinned. So here, a Pharisee is lost in his self-righteousness. A tax collector, oh, the untouchable, becomes a believer and is saved. And again, Jesus said, he who exalts himself will be humbled. 
Because the Pharisee, who was, I thank you, I'm not like other men, he ended up in Lake of Fire. The tax collector who humbled himself wouldn't even look up to God, wouldn't even raise his eyes, just cried out for mercy. He was exalted because he ended up in heaven. Then some mothers bring little children to Jesus. They want him to touch the children. And the disciples try and put a stop to it. Uh, but Jesus stopped them. And he said, Suffer the little children to come unto me, for such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus delighted in having mothers bring their little children so he could touch them. You know, the disciples thought, Jesus, you've, you've got important work to do. You've got important ministry to do. Well, yeah, Jesus did. And blessing these little children was part of that important work and ministry. And of course, this is how we know that young children are covered by the blood of Jesus anyway. They are automatically saved. So when children die, they automatically go to be with the Lord. When a child grows up and reaches the age of consent, whenever that is biblically, and it's probably younger than we care to think, but the point is then they have to believe on Jesus to be saved. But children are covered by the atonement of Jesus automatically. Um, then a, a rich young ruler, a rich young important leader of the Jews, comes to Jesus now and um, asks him how he can have eternal life. He says, Teacher, what must I do to uh, inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus quotes five of the Ten Commandments. Um, he misses out no other gods, he misses out no graven images, he misses out the Sabbath, and he misses out don't take the name of the Lord in vain. So Jesus misses out the four overtly spiritual ones, all right? He does adultery, murder, don't steal, don't bear false witness, and on your mother and father. All right? So he's done those five. Now, they're, they're the outward ones. But he's, and, and this guy says, these have I done since I was young. You know, I've done all them, so I'm, I'm home dry, am I? Now, Jesus missed one out because the Ten Commandments, they've got an ace in the hole right in the middle of them because with with adultery murder well i mean i've never committed adultery i've never murdered anyone i mean does that mean i'm home dry as far as the law is concerned does that mean i'm not a sinner well the problem is that there's another commandment that jesus hadn't told this bloke and it was don't covet now the do not covet kills us all because that's an internal attitude and uh, and, and the covet is when you want something that isn't yours it's the big i want it's the essence of what sinfulness is so Jesus has missed out the do not covet, and this bloke says, oh, well, I'm all right then, aren't I? And Jesus says, sell everything you've got and give it to the poor. Well, that's one way to find out if you're free of coveting, isn't it? And this bloke wasn't. And Jesus knew that for this person, it wouldn't apply to everyone by any means, but he knew that for this person to be a believer, he'd have to give all his money away because he was in such bondage to it. And, um, you know, he said, sell all you've got, give it to the poor. And it's said that this uh, rich young ruler went about, um, you know, went away sad because he had great wealth. So he, he couldn't make it. He, he, he wasn't saved because he wasn't prepared to pay the price. And uh, Jesus said, look, it's easier to get the camel through an eye of a needle than it is to, for a rich man to, to enter the kingdom. And then Jesus uh, gives some teaching on the fact that, um, you know, that there are some who have even left their families for him. And he said that there are going to be rewards if you've left even your family for me. So we won't ever lose out. Whatever following Jesus costs us, we'll get back far more in return, no question. Then uh, Jesus predicts his suffering 
and his death and that he's going to be raised again from the dead on the third day. Um, and then he approaches Jericho. You remember there were two Jerichos, but you know, Jericho was being moved and, and both were being lived in at the time. And a blind man cries out from the crowd for Jesus to heal him. And the crowd tries to silence him, but he keeps saying, Jesus, heal me. So there's faith there. And Jesus heals him. Now, from Mark's Gospel, we know that this was a blind Bartimaeus. Bartimaeus. And uh, from Matthew's Gospel, we know that he had a mate with him as well, but we don't know his name. So there is the healing of blind Bartimaeus. Now, in chapter 19, uh, we, we have a tax collector, so one of the untouchables, <laughs> called Zacchaeus. Um, and uh, you know, remember the tax collectors, they, collect, you know, they were Jews, but they worked for the Romans and took all the taxes and they fiddled people blind. And that's why the Jews hated them so much and considered them to be unclean along with the prostitutes. And he was really short and he knew that Jesus was coming to town. And, uh, and he was, because he was short, he couldn't see Jesus. He couldn't see over all the crowds. So he climbed a sycamore tree. So he climbed up the tree. This is a lovely picture of faith overcoming the limitations that we experience. He climbed up the sycamore tree and, and, and there, then he can see Jesus. And, um, you know, sort of like, and, and, and that's a good picture because whatever it is that holds us back, we've got to overcome it. He overcame it. That's us doing our bit. Now, the moment he did it, Jesus said to him, Zacchaeus, come down, I'm coming home for you with, uh, with you for tea. So Zacchaeus, he overcame the limitation. He climbed the tree, did his bit. And the moment he did his bit, Jesus said, oh, hello, Zacchaeus come down and let's go and have some tea together. God did his bit, you see. And, um, and as a result of Jesus coming to have tea with him, Zacchaeus became a believer, but he said to Jesus, I'm going to give half of all I've got to the poor, because the tax collectors were so wealthy, because of all the fiddling they did. He says, I'm giving half of what I've got to the poor. What a contrast to the rich young ruler, all right, who was a good, righteous, religious Jew. This is an outcast Jew. And he says, right, half my wealth I give to the poor. And he says, I'm going to make restitution to all the people that I've cheated by four times. So he's going to go back through his records and everyone that he'd embezzled, cheated, taken more tax than he should have done, he was going to return it to, to them with 400% interest. In, you know, wow. And that's that's following the Lord, isn't it? So that was a good one. And... Um, and Jesus then tells the parable of the ten minas. Now, then, this is a variation on the parable of the talents, talents, all right? One talent equaled 60 minas, all right? So it's a smaller coin. So we're talking smaller amounts of money here. But what Jesus is saying is that, look, ten servants were given one mina each, all right? Is it M-I-N-A? It's a coin. Ten mina each. Sorry, ten servants given one mina each. Now the point is, they all did. One made ten miners profit. One made five, right down to the one who did nothing. He just buried it. All right, you know. So the burying of the ten, he didn't do anything with it at all. And uh, and of course the point is, Zacchaeus has climbed a tree, and given loads of his money away to prove that he's following Jesus. He put his faith into action. Now we have people some who put their faith into action others who don't they do nothing with the grace and the truth and the revelation that they've got and um and so basically you know sort of like the servant who did nothing with what he had um he ended up getting nothing and in fact his one little coin that he did have was given to the bloke who had been given 10 and the rewards 
for the people who had done well with their investment was in charge of so many cities. So the guy who made 10 out of his one was put in charge of 10 cities. And of course, this is a picture of our faithfulness to Jesus, our servanthood, and in the thousand year reign of Jesus, when we're on the earth with him glorified, this will be the degree of authority we're given with him in ruling uh, the world during the thousand year reign of Jesus. And of course, in this context, it's all very much tied up you know, with the fact of Israel refusing to accept him as being their Messiah, even though they knew on the basis of their Old Testament law, and indeed on the basis of their tradition of the elders, they knew beyond doubt that he was who he said he was. They had all the revelation that they needed, but they still did nothing with it. So they were, Israel was the bloke with one minor, all right, who made nothing of it, and everything he had was taken from him, and uh, he was, you know, cross-referenced it with Matthew, cast into the outer darkness. Again, a picture of Israel being uh, rejected by God and replaced with the Gentile church. We now have the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So we are now right coming, the last days now of Jesus' life. Well, of, of life before the cross. And uh, the triumphal entry into Jerusalem, two of the disciples, we're not told which ones, are sent ahead to get an unridden cult. All right, and they're directed to where to go, and they bring it out, and Jesus rides into Jerusalem on this unridden cult. Now this, Matthew tells us, is in um, fulfilment of Zechariah, uh, chapter 9, verse 9, when it says, Lo, your king comes to you riding on a donkey, the colt of a donkey, the colt of an ass. And, uh, and of course, the picture is, uh, in the ancient world, if a, peace, if, if a king rode into a foreign nation on a donkey, it was a sign of peace. He was extending friendship. If a king rode in on a steed, a white charger, it was a sign that he was going to invade you. Now here, at this point, Jesus is still coming to Israel in peace. He's still coming to say, believe in me. But at the second coming, in Revelation, we're told that he comes on a horse. Because at the second coming, Jesus comes not to declare peace. He comes to declare war on the world and to judge it. And uh, so here is Jesus riding into Jerusalem on the, the donkey, the cult of the donkey. And, uh, and the people are crying out praises. This would have been like the Palm Sunday. I mean, you know, Luke, Luke doesn't describe it as such, but this was when they were putting the palm leaves down and Hosanna, Hosanna. We know that from Matthew's account. And, uh, you know, the people are crying out praises and the Pharisees complain. They're saying, Jesus, you shouldn't be receiving praises from these people. Who do you think you are? And what Jesus says, he says, if these people kept quiet, he said, the very stones will cry out. Wow. I mean, what a, I'm God or what? If you did stop these people crying out my praise, God would have the stones. I mean, this is on a par with, you know, things like, well, God can make children of Israel out of stones if he wants to, isn't it? This, this is Jesus declaring his Godhood so, so blatantly. He then prophesies that Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by armies and is going to be destroyed and that this will be a judgment on Israel, on Jerusalem for rejecting him. And of course in AD 70 the Romans under Titus rode in, they besieged Jerusalem and they completely destroyed it. He then goes to the temple and he throws out the moneylenders. Now in the temple they had a specific temple currency. 
So you have to go in, change your ordinary money into temple currency to buy your animals to sacrifice. Now the money, the money lenders were extorting money because of the interest rates. They were fitting the interest rates. They were just making loads of money out of it. It's a capitalistic venture. Jesus literally throws them out. He, he turns their tables over and he throws them out of the temple. And he says, my, my father's house should be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of thieves. And uh, Jesus got physical with them. He threw them out. Chapter 20, um, Jesus is teaching in the temple courts now. And it's his last few days in Jerusalem. And uh, he's teaching in the temple courts. And the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law come up to him. And they say, look, by what authority are you doing all this? By what authority are you saying all these things? And Jesus said, right, okay, now that you tell me, was John's authority from God or men? Was John's baptism from God or men? You answer that first, then I'll answer you. And of course he had them. Because if they'd have said, no, John's baptism was of men, the people would have turned against him because they all believed John was a prophet. And if they'd said, no, we believe John's baptism was from God, then Jesus would have said to them, well, why aren't you doing what John said then and believing on me? And so he silenced them completely. And, uh, and uh, you know, that was, um, that, that, that was the end of uh, that little batch of uh, questioning. And uh, Jesus tells a parable now, and this will sound familiar to you, of uh, a guy who owned a vineyard. And uh, what happened was that um, he, he goes away from the vineyard and the tenants in control of the vineyard um, take it over for themselves. And uh, he sends his servants, but each servant he sends, the tenants in the vineyard kill the servant. Eventually, the master sends his own son, and the tenants of the vineyard kill his son. And, uh, and Jesus says that what happened was, is that the tenant went in there, uh, sorry, the master went in there, and he destroyed the vineyard, and he killed all the tenants and gave the vineyard to someone else. And of course, Israel, we saw the fig tree, Israel in the Old Testament was also known as the vine. And of course the point is that here, again Jesus is saying, because of what you're doing Israel, you are the tenants of the vineyard, you're going to be killed, and the vineyard is going to be given to the Gentiles. And of course that's exactly what happened. Israel cut out of God's plan temporarily, they'll be back later after the rapture, but Israel cut out of God's plan because they didn't believe on Jesus, and replaced by the Gentile church. Then they, uh, the Pharisees come back with more trick questions and uh, saying, you know, they got you know, the coin and they said, Jesus, do we pay taxes to Caesar? Now, what they were trying to do, if Jesus had said, yes, pay your taxes to Caesar, they'd have said, oh, Roman collaborator, and tried to turn the people against him like that. But if Jesus had said, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, they'd have gone to Pontius Pilate and said, Jesus is teaching that we should pay taxes to the Romans. So, Jesus, and this is, you know, you see Jesus, the word of wisdom, the gift of the word of wisdom all the time, knowing exactly the right thing to say. He took the coin, <coughs> he said, whose inscription is on the coin? And they said, Caesar's. And he said, right, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God's. Off Crete, the Pharisees, and there's just no answer to it. Now the Sadducees have a go. Now the Sadducees, you'll remember, uh, they, they were the group of the Jewish leaders who didn't, they didn't believe in the supernatural, they didn't believe in life after death. They were a bit like a lot of the, uh, 
Anglican bishops that you get today. You know, they didn't they didn't believe the Old Testament in a supernatural way. They just saw it as mythology and didn't believe in any of the supernatural bit. So what they did, they come to Jesus and say, "Look, Jesus, all right, is this 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 bloke all right? He married, and he died." And it was customary when a bloke died that if he had a brother who wasn't married, he'd marry the wife. And again, it was a protection for the woman. So husband number one died. Unmarried brother number two steps in, marries her. He dies. Had another unmarried brother. Number three steps in, marries her. And this happened to seven brothers. So this woman has been married to seven brothers of the same family. Now, now they say to him, right, okay, in the, you know, in heaven, because you believe in heaven, don't you, Jesus, they're saying. In heaven, whose wife is she? And they thought, oh, we've got him here. And of course, this was when Jesus said to him, now look, and he said, you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God, because they didn't believe in the supernatural and they didn't believe in the Old Testament either. And, uh, you know, so what Jesus is saying, he says, look, in the afterlife, in regards to marriage, they're going to be like the angels. There won't be marriage in heaven. And that pulls the rug out from them. Now, the point is, because the Pharisees did believe in the Old Testament, they considered the Sadducees heretics. This made the Pharisees agree with Jesus against the Sadducees. Can you imagine the wranglings and the arguments and Jesus would have walked off leaving the Pharisees and the Sadducees yelling and screaming various doctrines at each other because they were... They, they were totally against each other. And uh, then, then Jesus does some teaching, and he quotes Psalm 110. And um, now Psalm 110 is King David saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make all your enemies as a footstool. And what Jesus is saying, look, Messiah is going to be the son of David. True. But how can he be David's son if King David thousand years ago called him his Lord. And what Jesus is pointing here is that in the Old Testament you have the Trinity. That here you have King David, alright, saying, the Lord said to my Lord. The Lord, God the Father, saying to David's Lord, God the Son, the Messiah, Jesus the Son of God. So here you have Jesus throwing at them because all the time they were trying to say it's a blasphemy for a man to say he's God. And Jesus says, hang on, look, it's here in the Old Testament, isn't it? Look, the Lord said to my Lord, well, I am the Lord that David's Lord spoke to. See, and that from their own scriptures, again, you know, sort of like a, he, he establishes his pre-existence there from Psalm 110 and again they, they couldn't do anything about it and uh, he then warns the teacher, the, the people, the crowds, he warns them against the teachers of the law and because of their pride and he tells them look these, these people, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law with all their questions trying to trick me up he says <coughs> I warn you against them because of their pride and because of their love of money and because of their love of religious status. And Jesus exposed them for what they were. They were completely insincere. They had the semblance of religiosity, but their religiosity was their status. And Jesus just exposes them in public so that the people weren't taken in by them. Right, chapter 21, and uh, we have the, uh, the story of the widow's mite. 
We saw that in detail in Matthew, but you'll you remember when uh, you know, Jesus saw all the rich people putting money in out of their abundance, and the widow comes along with a little mite, you know, and puts in all she had. And Jesus said, oh yes, she understands giving. Not that lot, she understands giving. Then Jesus gives a series of prophecies about the future. And he, he tells them that the temple, and he's teaching in the temple courts, he tells them that the, the temple was going to be destroyed and that not one stone would be left on the other. Now, that's, that was a pretty daft thing to say. It's one thing to say that a temple is going to be destroyed. It's another thing to say that not one stone was going to be uh, left on another. Now, this, this was fulfilled in AD 70. The Romans surrounded Jerusalem. They sieged it, I think, for four years. Now, what was so significant is that the temple was destroyed, in fact, not by the Romans at all. The Romans had specific instructions to leave the temple intact. But the temple was destroyed by warring factions of Jews inside it who set fire to it. Civil war broke out amongst the Jews in Jerusalem while the Romans were besieging it. And as a result of, of factions fighting, the temple caught fire. Now, the fire was so intense that because of there was loads of gold work in the temple, I mean, it was all laden with gold, it was incredible. Now, the fire would have melted the gold. So it would have destroyed the temple, but melted the gold. So once the temple was destroyed, I mean, obviously, it'd be, you know, be a bit of a heap of rubble, but all through it, molten gold had settled down through all the stones because you had gold melting right from the ceiling down the walls. Well, obviously, that meant that once the siege was over and Jerusalem was defeated, the Roman soldiers went in and they literally picked it apart stone by stone to get the gold out. There was, you know, so that was how that was uh, fulfilled. Jesus said that the disciples would be persecuted, which they were. I mean, of the 12 disciples, as far as we know, John was the only one who, who wasn't martyred. Um, and, um, you know, that he, he said Jerusalem will be surrounded by armies, which has again happened in AD 70. And then Jesus said that this will lead to the captivity of Israel and the trampling of Israel by the Gentiles till the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now that takes us up to the rapture. And although... Although Israel is back in Israel as a nation, and has been since 1948, they've still only got a tiny little bit of what should be theirs. You know, so much of the land still isn't theirs. So to that extent, they're still being trampled on by the Gentiles. So now we have right up to the rapture of the church. And at the rapture of the church, the time of the Gentiles is over, and then Israel's prophetic clock starts ticking, and God grafts them back in, and Israel becomes a means of salvation to the world again through the Great Tribulation and throughout the thousand-year reign of Jesus. So, so there you have the rapture of the church. And, uh, and, and Jesus now moves in through the Great Tribulation up to the second coming when the Son of Man comes in glory. And then he says, look, he says, it's like, like leaves sprouting on a fig tree. Israel should have been able to read the signs that summer, as it were, was coming. Because the thing is, up to this time, Jesus has fulfilled all the Old Testament signs of Messiah, all the signs that they said according to their traditions would happen. Jesus has done it all, and they failed to read the signs. But the point is, once the Great Tribulation happens, when all the future prophecies in Daniel, 
revelation all get fulfilled Israel will be able to know that oh we're in the great tribulation and it will then they'll have another chance to believe the signs and to believe on Jesus and in the great tribulation they will and that is when Israel is going to be saved so they've read the signs and missed them this time but in the great tribulation they're going to read all these other signs and they're going to believe and they're going to be saved um, and then Jesus said, and this is a verse in the Bible that, you know, get, get, gets very misunderstood. He says, this generation will not pass away until all these things happened. And people say, well, there you are, the Bible's wrong, second coming hasn't happened, that generation, they died 2,000 years ago. There, wrong. <laughs> right. Now then, a bit of Greek. The word for generation there can have two meanings. It can mean generation, as in revival generation. It can mean a generation of 40 years, right, okay. <laughs> But also, it can simply mean a generic people. It's the word you get genealogy from, a generic people, right? And what Jesus is saying here, all his prophecies are surrounding the Gentiles trying to destroy Israel, which they do to a certain extent. And what Jesus is saying is this people, this generation, this genealogy, this generic group of people, Israel won't pass away till all these things have happened. But of course not. We've already seen the second coming can't happen until Israel prays for it. So what Jesus is saying here is given all the prophecies about the future, <coughs> all the misfortunes going to come on Israel, and my goodness, Revelation and Daniel gives us a heck of a lot more than Jesus has here. And he says, but nevertheless, Israel is still going to be here. It's not going to pass away. Israel won't be totally annihilated, but will be restored. So that's what that verse means. It doesn't mean that general people living then. It means Israel as a nation. And, uh, and then Luke tells us that during this last week, because we're in the last week now, that Jesus taught in the temple daily, that he spent the evenings um, on the Mount of Olives. He was staying with a friend on the Mount of Olives and during the day going down and teaching at the temple. Right, chapter 22. Satan now enters Judas, and Judas goes to the chief priest to discuss how he might uh, betray Jesus and what the fee might be. Um, Peter and John are now sent into the city and uh, Jesus tells them follow a man carrying a jar of water to his guest room that's a nice little word of knowledge for you there um, and he said prepare Passover meal so they go in and they follow this bloke carrying a water jar and they go to him and that, that's where Jesus has arranged for the Passover to be so they prepare the Passover meal and obviously then Jesus and the rest go there and now you have the Last Supper now you have Jesus's, this, this is my body broken for you, this is the blood of the new covenant. Here you have the institution of the, um, the, the love feast for the church, the Lord's Supper. Here you have Jesus conducting what is the last Passover, because remember he was going to die the next day as the Passover lamb, okay. So this is the last Passover, but the first um, of the church love feast. So Jesus here is instituting the, um, the love feast, the church meal, the heart of a church worship. And so here you have the body and blood and he takes the bread and the wine and he says, look, you know, the, the wine is my blood, the, the food you eat is, is the body and do this in remembrance of me until, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and then after that, Jesus uh, 
We know from John's Gospel that he washed the disciples' feet, although none of the other Gospels actually tell us that, but John's Gospel uh, fills in that missing piece of the jigsaw. But uh, Luke tells us of Jesus' teaching about the greatest being the servant of all, and that the Gentiles, they lord it over each other. But uh, that's not so um, amongst Christians. And uh, if you're going to be great in the kingdom, you must be a servant. And he tells Peter that Satan has uh, asked to, to sift him like wheat. The idea of a threshing stage here, you know, give him a good beating and all the chaff comes out, or, you know, only the wheat is left. You know, like separate out the sinful nature so that can be dealt with and the new nature is left. And, um, you know, and you know, Jesus said, well, I pray for you that your faith won't fail. And Peter said, oh, Lord, I'll die for you. I, I won't let you down, Lord. And of course he did, didn't he? And that was how Satan sifted him because Peter came out of that knowing his sinfulness in a way he'd never done before. And the reason that God could use Peter so so amazingly after he was filled with the Spirit was because in this few days here he was so emptied and broken of himself. And uh, the more emptied you are of you, the more filled you can be with, with Jesus. And uh, Jesus warns the disciples how rough it's going to get for them in the future. Um, e even down to them being ready, if necessary, to, to defend themselves. You know, that life was, was not going to be easy for them at all. Now Jesus goes to the Mount of Olives. So they finished the meal and they got to the Mount of Olives now. And uh, that was where Gethsemane was. That It was a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. And this was where Jesus now... This, this is where the suffering of the cross really begins. Because... Jesus here is, is, you know, sort of like he's, he's saying, Father, take this cup away from me if, if you can. I don't want to do this. But he says, but not my will, but yours be done. Now that's, that's the essence of following Jesus. As Jesus said to the Father, not my will, but yours be done, we say to Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. Remember Jesus said, as the Father sent me, so I send you. So Jesus' stance to the Father, submission, must be our stance to Jesus, submission, not my will, but yours be done. Remember, he sweated drops like, you know, blood, and, and it, this was the beginning of his suffering. And you'll remember the disciples couldn't stay awake, could they? You know, Jesus was saying, look, can't you stay awake with me for one hour? And, and they couldn't, they, you know, like the, the, the flesh is willing, the uh, spirit is willing, but the flesh is, uh, is, is, is weak. And now Judas comes on the scene, and uh, he's got the the you know sort of like various soldiers with him and stuff like that. And uh, remember, Jesus come uh, Judas comes up to him and he gives Jesus the kiss. And 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 it's, it's funny. It's so easy for for Christians and for the church to go on about love, love, love. And I'm not mocking love. Love is the most important aspect. God is love. But the way, can you see here that Judas betrays Jesus with an outward sign of love? And so often we betray Jesus by using love to get out of sometimes doing the hard things that he calls us to do. You know, sort of like often we don't want to be persecuted. So if, if we love everyone, but it's not love, it's, it's, it's compromising. It's telling them what they want to hear rather than what God wants them to hear. Uh, here it's, so, it's so symbolic to me that Judas betrays Jesus with an outward sign of Christian love. It, it, it's so easy to have all the hugs and that. And I'm not saying let's not have them, but 
you, you can betray Jesus with a hug and, and, and you know we need to to watch that you know but they come and they arrest Jesus and um, this this you know Luke, Luke tells us the high priest servant's ear gets cut off by someone we know from the other gospels when you put it all together that the high priest servant was called Malchus and it was Peter who cut his ear off and um, you know so Peter I won't let you down Lord I'll do your will you know, cut someone's ear off I mean it's like Moses, isn't it? I'll set your people free, Lord. So he goes and kills an Egyptian. Oh boy, great help! You know, this is this is really the kind of you know, this this is the kind of help God doesn't need. And yet, often this, oh, I'll, I'll I'll do your will, Lord. Well, this was why Peter needed to be sifted like wheat by Satan, because um, you know, I mean, was he loving Malchus when he cut his ear off? Was he forgiving him? Right. Well, he's all his sins coming out. You see, the the being threshed. And, and the chaff is flying out. And when God deals with us, we walk around and we're just chaff flying out, aren't we? But God wants it to fly out so it can be dealt with because what's left is the wheat, the new nature, Jesus within us. But Jesus puts Malchus's ear, ear back on and heals it. That's, you know, what we got here? Oh, uh, um, and, and what Jesus, he points out to, to all these, because priests would have been there as well, he points out to them, <coughs> the darkness of their actions. He says, look, I've been teaching in the temple every day, in the light. And he says, but you come to me in the dark, as if what I've been doing is in secret. But he says to them, but this is your hour when darkness reigns. And they came to Jesus in the dark. Remember in Gong's, in, in, <laughs> in Gong's Gospel, in John's Gospel, you remember that John said that men love darkness rather than light because the light shows up their evil deeds. They come to get Jesus at night. <coughs> and Jesus is taken to the um, house of the high priest. And Peter follows at a distance. And he stays in the courtyard while Jesus is in the um, house of the high priest. Now he gets his chance to, I won't let you down, Lord, I'll die for you. And he gets three opportunities to declare that he's a friend of Jesus. And on all three occasions, he denies that he knows Jesus. You see, Satan is sifting him like wheat. Satan is arranging these circumstances, all under God's control. And, um, and the cock crowed. And as the cock crowed, he saw Jesus. Now, this is probably Jesus being moved from one place to another. So the cock crows, it's dawn now. And as Jesus is being moved, he's come out of the high priest's house. And Peter in the courtyard sees him. And, um, you know, and he looks straight at Jesus. And he goes outside and he weeps bitterly because he was broken. And this was the brokenness that every believer has to go through. This was why Peter could be so used from Pentecost onward. He was so emptied of himself. He had the full measure of himself now. He realised how dark the Lord I'll die for you was. He had the will, but he didn't have it in him to do it. And, and, and this was where Peter began to stop trusting in himself and to trust in the Lord. And then Luke tells us that Jesus is now mocked and beaten by the guards who are guarding him. And, um, you know, literally they, they've beaten him so badly that he can't see. His eyes are so swollen. And as they're punching him, they're saying, prophesy who hit you. And Jesus is then taken 
put before the Sanhedrin. This was the 70-strong body that ruled Israel religiously. And um, he's put before the Sanhedrin at dawn. He's challenged by them and he confirms to them that he's the Messiah. Chapter 23, he's taken to Pilate and uh, they accuse him of opposing paying taxes to Caesar, uh, which was a lie. And they mix him with it, but he claims to be the Messiah. But, uh, you know, but sort of like, but making it sound political, as if Jesus was wanting to fight against Rome, which Jesus wasn't at all. And, uh, but Pilate finds no basis to charge him and sends him to Herod. Because Jesus was a Galilean, Herod was in Jerusalem down south, but he was based up north, but he was there for a visit. And, uh, you know, he was down there for the Passover. So um, Jesus was taken to Herod, who was visiting Jerusalem for the Passover. And uh, Herod questioned him and mocked him, but then sent him back to Pilate. You know, said, no, I don't, you know, sort of deal with you. You go and uh, you, you know, go and be dealt with by Pilate. And Luke says that Herod and Pilate become friends that day. They'd been enemies up till then, but they became friends. And, uh, you know, it's just one of those ironic things that happens, isn't it? And uh, Pilate tries to release Jesus using the thing before the Passover that he couldn't set one prisoner free, but the crowds choose Barabbas, a terrorist murderer, instead. So Jesus is then led away for crucifixion, and Simon of Cyrene is forced to carry his cross. And uh, Jesus, he, he's on the cross now, and he tells the, the wailing women, all the women who, who are crying, he tells them not to weep for him, but to weep for themselves and their children because of all that was to befall them. Because of course now Israel was going to be handed over to judgment at the hand of the Gentiles. Now we have the crucifixion. He's crucified between two criminals. Uh, he cries out, Father forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. The soldiers divide his garments by lot at the base of the cross. Um, and he's mocked by the crowd and by the soldiers. And uh, he's mocked by both of the criminals. But then one of them um, becomes a believer and he rebukes the other criminal and he says no we're here we deserve to be here but he's done no wrong and he said Jesus remember me when you come into your kingdom and Jesus said today you'll be with me in paradise down with Abraham and uh, so so there's a death deathbed conversion a, a death cross this 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 thief is dying but he becomes a believer in the nick of time there's darkness from noon till three. Jesus went on, you know, there's, there's darkness here uh, for three hours. The curtain in the temple is torn in two from the top to the bottom. And uh, because obviously that, that curtain, that only the priests could go behind, that barrier, the sin barrier, it's been dealt with now because Jesus has, has, has died. And, uh, and Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he died. So, G you know, he says, Father, I commit my spirit. Jesus died when he chose to. Jesus decided, like he knew that was done. I've borne the sin of the world, and he died. It was over. Uh, the, and the centurion who was there declared that Jesus was surely a righteous man, because he could tell that this crucifixion was so different from any other. They were amazed that Jesus died so quickly. You didn't die this quickly from crucifixion, because Jesus died when he decided to. And uh, Joseph of Arimathea, um, who was on the Sanhedrin, he gets Pilate's body, uh, Pilate's uh, okay to get Jesus' body and put it in his own tomb, which he did. And uh, the women who follow Jesus follow to see where the tomb was. But now it's the Sabbath, or the, the, you know, just before the Sabbath, and they have to, 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 to go back for the Sabbath. So then you get the Sabbath, and, and in chapter 24 we go to the, 
the Sunday morning and um, and the women go back to the tomb early and they they find the um, the, the stone rolled away and uh, which was pretty remarkable and uh, but it was rolled away and they went inside but Jesus's body was gone and two men appear to them whose clothes were gleaming like lightning so clearly these are angels and uh, the women fell to the ground they just angels appearing they kind of hit the deck and uh, but 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 the men angels appearing as men tell them that Jesus is risen and reminded them that he prophesied that he would rise from the dead so they said this this shouldn't come as a surprise the women go and tell the 11 so they go back to the 11 disciples obviously Judas is gone and um, but the disciples thought they were talking nonsense they said you're talking nonsense women nonsense but Peter ran to the tomb to see for himself now in a talk later on we're going to put all the we're going to put it all together and get a full picture of the you know events you know in the lead up to the cross and what happened afterwards we'll put all the pieces together get the whole picture but Luke says that later that day there were two other disciples and one was called Cleopas and they were on their way to Emmaus which was about seven miles from Jerusalem now Jesus joined them but he kept them from recognizing him so he appeared he joined them but he didn't let them realize who he was and uh, they were downcast and they told this supposed stranger everything that happened in Jerusalem and they said our hopes have come to nothing albeit the women did say that the tomb's empty but they were very oh you know we had hoped but and uh, Jesus and they don't know who he is took them through all the Old Testament proving that all this was, was how the Old Testament prophesied it would be well they eventually rised, you know, arrived at the village where they were staying and asked Jesus to stay with them and they ate together and as they were eating Jesus revealed himself to them and they realised who it was then Jesus vanished and they, they said wow didn't our hearts burn inside of us when he opened the scriptures on the road to us and, uh, and they, they, they immediately they go back to Jerusalem so seven miles trot back to Jerusalem and they, they find the eleven alright the disciples and they said we, we've seen Jesus and then the disciples said Peter has seen Jesus as well and so they related stories and we'll see you know what blah 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 um, then Jesus appears amongst them he's there and he says peace be with you and uh, they were frightened they thought he was a ghost but Jesus assured them that he wasn't but was quite physical and he showed them his hands and his feet and then he ate some fish so he said look you see I'm not a ghost I'm not a spirit I'm here physically and, and then Jesus again he opened the scriptures he went through all the Old Testament and he shows them how everything had gone exactly as the Old Testament taught and he told them that they're to be his witnesses and uh, but they're to stay in Jerusalem until he sends the promise of the Father and he says you're going to be clothed with power from on high now this is when they were baptized with the Spirit at Pentecost so he says stay in Jerusalem you're going to be my witnesses but you can't do it until you've received the power of the Holy Spirit then we skip forward 40 days and uh, Jesus leads the disciples to Bethany that was the village on the Mount of Olives where he was staying just before he was crucified and, uh, and he blessed them and then he ascended into heaven and uh, they worshipped him and they returned to Jerusalem full of joy and uh, spent a lot of time in the temple praising God so next time as Luke will move on to John's gospel who gives us lots of info that the other gospels don't 
and then after having done John's Gospel, it will take us a while to do that, it's very detailed, then we're going to put the whole thing together and get the whole picture of Jesus' life and ministry, and in particular the events leading up to his crucifixion, and the events that happened, and the order of the events that happened when Jesus rose again from the dead and was appearing to people up until he ascended 40 days later.